welcome back to Happy Port Radio. This season, we are talking about the circular economy. In today's episode, Barry and I have been joined by Paul McSweeney, who is the founder and CEO of the ZeroNet, an app that allows households to simply and quickly donate unwanted items and have them collected right from their front door. Paul was very kind in sharing his long story with us getting to the point of now having launched a pilot in Stirling and lots of upcoming exciting projects for the Zero Net. Um, It was quite a story, Barry. Yeah, it really was. It sounded like he had the original idea. He talked about it being 10 years ago. So one of the cool things is, I use the word cool a lot. I think I mean inspiring and sort of encouraging is that when we asked him that question, he said it's a job that must be done. So I thought that was really inspiring. So that's his kind of story or the entrepreneurial story of getting something like this off the ground and being involved with Ellen MacArthur Foundation for CE100 and so on to get to that point. The story of the app or the problem that they're solving is also, I think, really cool. Working on, again, another very challenging problem of joining the dots of a vital part of a circular economy, of anything in the circular economy in terms of reverse logistics returning the product for reuse, for recycling, or for whatever is necessary is it's such a tough problem, and I think it's really inspiring what Paul was talking about. Yeah, what I really liked about this project is that it's kind of really practical. I understand exactly the issue that he's confronting, and also I would use this app. I'm really keen for it to go nationwide so that I can get on this app. <laughs> It just feels I like thinking the, the solution that we all need. And there's lots of elements to it from his side in terms of the partners that he has had to collaborate with and thinking even about data security and all the aspects of collecting unwanted items from households. But it was really great to hear his experience of working through all these things and getting to a point that it's now a reality and it's growing all the time. Mm, very much so and the complexity of working with because different products different things go to different places and have different uses so multiple different stakeholders and partners working with that and he talked about that and I thought that was I suspect probably almost the harder part of doing a platform like this so very cool and without any further ado let's meet Paul Good to talk to you, Barry and Emily. Paul McSweeney is my name. I've been involved in the circular economy one way or another for many, many years now. I'm the founder of a business called Zero Bin Group, Zero Net Services, as we call it in the UK. And the business was set up primarily in order to allow us to create a whole new way of thinking about collection logistics. And uh, just collection logistics might sound like something fairly dull and banal. But just to give you a little bit of context, uh, a number of years ago, I was walking near my house. And simultaneously, I saw two things take place. And uh, let's just say it really struck a chord. Uh, on the one hand, I saw an Irish male, an unpost van that was delivering something to somebody's house. And at the very same time, I saw a waste truck going to a neighboring house and collecting the black bin residual waste outside that house. And I was just very struck by the contrast between the two things. On the one hand, you had this very professional approach whereby a householder was acquiring a unit of inventory from a probably a big brand like Amazon. Everything about that product was known, was tracked, was traceable. On the other hand, then you had this fairly kind of clunky 
almost amateurish-like process for removing residual waste. And it just struck me, without knowing anything at this stage about circular economy, that, that all came a little bit later. But I just, very briefly, I remember asking myself the question as to what would happen if you could apply the same kind of rigor on the collection side as you could on the outbound side? So what if, you know, from a, a waste reduction perspective, you were able to professionalize that collection stream? So the idea was born and the idea didn't go anywhere for some time. I was doing other things at the time. and But I do remember that I did produce a kind of a, a slide deck about the idea and I decided I'd go around and do some canvassing and somebody said to me and I thought I'd be a little bit adventurous here and, and I thought what if you could apply that collection kind of paradigm to a postal service and what would their opinion be of an idea like that so I said let's start big so I reached out to the Royal Mail in London not thinking I would get anywhere and within a relatively short period of time, a matter of days, several people came back and said, actually, that's a really interesting idea. Can you come and talk to us? So I found myself in their headquarters in Blackfriars in London, and I presented the model with, I had no software, just an idea. And interestingly, they, one of their guys looked at the model and he said, you know, what's really interesting about that is that if you could do this for the Royal Mail at scale, at UK-wide scale, it's almost inevitable that it would have an enormous impact on our profitability. And in fact, he said, that would actually, you know, that would double, treble, quadruple our profitability if you could do this at scale. And I thought, why? What exactly is the reason for that? And he said, well, the thing about, you know, what we do and what all national postal service companies do globally is they, they have an obligation to go to every single postcode in the land. And in the case of the Royal Mail, it's about 29 million unique postcodes, 27 million households, and but they have an obligation to go there. But they are already in situ, on site, and they have no way of monetizing their relationship with the householder beyond the piece of mail or the package that they deliver. So if you're able to create for them, as our model is now able to do, a way of knowing what kinds of unwanted products, materials, are in their households. And if you're able to find, create a very clever way of recovering those things at scale, then suddenly they happen to have an extremely ready-to-go logistics network that can dovetail in with that demand. And even then, this is a long time ago, this is 2012, I still hadn't heard much about the circular economy. I think within a couple of months of that meeting, and I ended up having a, a lot of conversations with the Royal Mail, and let's just say that we're still in discussions with various parties on a global basis to do with the, the postal sector. And somebody suggested to me here in Ireland that I should reach out and make contact with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, because they had been obviously banging this circular economy drum for a couple of years at that stage. And they had acquired a kind of an aura, almost an, an authority about circularity, which they still very much deservedly have. And I was very lucky at the time to have been asked to become a member of their CE100, Circular Economy 100, which is a, a grouping that they set up of academics, uh, industry bodies, state authorities, local authorities. So basically, this was a very significant global talking shop and policy uh, creation entity that was going from strength to strength. And I was lucky to have spent about four years in that body mixing with the great and the good and getting a real deep understanding of what circularity was about. And the one thing I was really struck by, and, and they were too, was that one of the missing links to enable circular economy to happen at scale was 
the requirement for a kind of a reinvention or reimagining of collection logistics. And as it turned out, that was just that kind of brainwave that I had had a little while earlier. So, you know, a very long story. And it's very hard to kind of summarize something like this in, a, in just a couple of short sentences. But the kinds of brands that I was exposed to during that time, you know, Unilever, which is the world's second biggest fast-moving consumer good entity with 400 brands and about 2 billion customers, Nespresso of the coffee cup fame, Dell, HP, Apple, and many, many more. And there was a common theme that was sort of flowing through all of the conversations with with these companies that, you know, they needed in order for them to achieve their circular ambitions. And some of them were doing some really far out thinking and some very innovative pilots and trials which had the purpose of, of trying to establish uh, circularity in a significant way. And many of them would say to me, look, you know, we need you to build your thing so we can see what it looks like. I thought that would take me a couple of years. It took me more like six. And that's another long story short. Um, <laughs> <laughs> kind of, so. That is amazing. And I would really like to come back if we have time to talk about the CE100 and the impact and all that there. But moving on to what you were talking about there, the process of like as you say, you have this idea has been bubbling away, and you've been kind of hearing, I guess, validation. But so when you came to the point where you say, "Okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to create the app, I'm going to create the technology, and try and join those dots," how did you go about that? Where did you start, yeah. and what was that journey like? Well, I think the starting point and the probably the. The difficulty in trying to think back to that time was that it's marked by an enormous amount of rejection because the the traditional route when you're in a startup mode is that you reach out to the venture capital community or to the, the finance community in a general sense and you say, please give me a million pounds and I will give you 10% of this fantastic idea which will make the whole thing worth 10 million and then we maybe build something and you can flip it and sell it to somebody else in a couple of years time for 100 million and then we'll all sail away wealthy people into the sunset that's all very well in theory but it doesn't quite work like that in practice and it's probably fair to say that the whole finance community is still struggling to get its head around circularity and how circular models can be profitable so i managed to obtain some grants from various bodies, and probably the most significant one of which was in Scotland, in that one of the co-members of the the Alan MacArthur founder of the CE100 was Zero Waste Scotland, still is Zero Waste Scotland, which is uh, probably the most groundbreaking government agency possibly in the world working in the circular economy space. It's an absolutely uh, amazing agency in that it is tasked with driving the move to circularity that is, is really starting to gather pace now in um, in Scotland. And, and they liked my model. And again, a long story short, I was successful in obtaining a fund from Zero Waste Scotland, which allowed us to build a fairly robust prototype version of our platform, which we were able to trial last year in Stirling successfully. So that was a really good start. It got the project off the ground and we've been enhancing it since then. And we're still very much hopeful and lockdown notwithstanding. I think we would be active in Scotland right now. But another opportunity arose earlier this year to deploy the platform in England, in fact, in Brighton. And right now we're working on that project uh, in earnest to get the project deployed with the local partners for the purposes of electronic waste recovery. So e-waste or we to use the European acronym, is the bane of many people who work in the waste sector. It's a staggering waste stream, you know, represents about 50 million tons of 
inappropriately handled materials every year. A staggering amount of it, I mean, 70% of it, doesn't get reprocessed in a way that would allow the materials that are recovered to come back into primary circulation so that your new iPod or your Dell laptop and anything that you buy, these products for the most part are manufactured from materials that are newly extracted from the ground, which is, this is in spite of the fact that many, many brands, including the ones I mentioned, do great things to try and ensure that their post-consumer products can in fact be recovered. But the bit where it really does fall down yet again is the whole area of collection, or to give it its proper name in circular economy speak, it's, it's often referred to as reverse logistics, which is the whole area of how you recover everything to do with the process of recovering from a consumer source. If you think about it, you know, if you have a thousand TV sets in a warehouse, you know, you know where they are, you can tell what they were made of, you can get a very large degree of understanding of exactly what those products are because you know where they are. But as soon as they're sold to a thousand locations, which is going to be what will happen because they're TVs, suddenly that link is lost and recovering them becomes a real struggle. And to recover them in a way that allows them to be appropriately disassembled at scale, that's a real challenge. So we're looking to start with electronic waste as our initial material that we want to recover. And we're we were lucky enough to obtain uh, grant funding to deploy this project, uh, which we now hope will go live in September. So, Paul, you mentioned that you've had a pilot in Sterling with the yes. platform. What does the platform look like? As a user, when I go on, what can I do with the platform? Yeah. And then what's the kind of process that happens after that once things have, have been collected or what happens? So the platform consists of two apps, a user app, which is designed to allow you to register the fact that you live in a location. So Joe Bloggs, 10 Main Street, Northumberland. And so we've then been able to use the app to identify that a demand exists. So if this was, let's say, operating across Brighton, we would be able to see using our, what we call our portal we'd be able to see in real time that there might be 6,742 collection requests for small we, and we know exactly where those are. So we have a geolocation for every one of those addresses. So from a user point of view, the app will be will telling you, thank you for making your registration. We will be in touch to let you know when we plan to collect, or we'll offer you a collection slot, for example. So the next piece is we engage with a batch of, because this is all about making the whole process of recovery very efficient. We will then engage with an appropriate group, could be anything from 40 to 100 that we could perhaps do in a day with a, a van. And then we link that up with a driver app. And the driver app then allows um, a driver to go from house to house and to collect exactly what was registered and capture it in a way that's very granular. So instead of having you know, a bag containing a whole bunch of cables and broken hair dryers and toasters and kettles. One of the big themes in e-waste today is reuse. And reuse is way more useful in terms of environmental benefits than recycling. Yes, of course, it would be great to take the old toaster and kettle and divert it away from the black bin and ensure that it was at the very least recycled at a material level, but it is more valuable and more useful environmentally to recover something for reuse ahead of recycling in the so-called waste hierarchy where reuse is higher up. So we've got these two apps working side by side. So we've got a, a very kind of rich driver experience that allows this high level of granularity. Even to them, I'll give you an example of that. One of the services that we'll be offering is the ability to recover so-called data bearing 
we, being a wanted laptop or an old phone. And one of the barriers to recovery in terms of people's um, psychological worries on this score is their legacy data. So what we're able to, to offer is a secure collection and the ability to destroy the data using you know, military-grade software, if appropriate, that would destroy their data, but also recover the item so that it can be reused again. And we're planning to provide people with a, a message by way of a notification once the data has been destroyed off-site to let them know, in fact, that that took place. So you, know, you give up this old Dell laptop that you've been hoarding for seven years. You're not quite sure if it works anymore, but you know that it's not necessary for you to hang on to it. You don't intend to use it again because you've long since been superseded, but your worry is your data. So this service will you know, allow it to be collected from your doorstep and you get a message to say the data was destroyed. So it's kind of a, it's a what's not to like. And we're really hoping that that aspect of the service will really resonate with people. Mm. Yeah, that sounds like a really valuable service, actually. I know that it's definitely something that I've experienced when I've been trying to get rid of e-waste is thinking, well, how do I clear this computer or how do I make sure that it's all secure before I get rid of it? And also, how do I make sure that once I get rid of this piece of equipment, that it's not just going to end up in a landfill or that it is going to be reused or if it can't be reused, it'll be recycled. So, I mean, first of all, I suppose the question is, do you have an idea of what percentage of the products that you collect can actually be reused? And for those that can't be reused, what's the process then of recycling and making sure that they are being disposed of responsibly? So in the case of a known product, let's say um, an Apple or a Dell laptop that's relatively out of date, once we are able to recover it and it's handling at the point of collection is very important you know that if you think of the traditional way of doing it that you bring it to a household waste recycling center which many of these right now are actually furloughed in the uk because of the crisis so there's a difficulty in even going to these places and people have a reluctance to go to them in any event so the process is that if it can be recovered and it's possible for it to be upgraded data wiped and given maybe given a new operating system because you know you might be familiar with these light touch operating systems like ubuntu which can take a very old laptop that wouldn't work with say windows 10 but it would work with something like ubuntu which is allow the machine to be used as some kind of a chromebook type so that's the first thing is can you keep it going without intervention the second thing is can you cannibalize the machine for spare parts if the parts are known because whilst the machine might not be working anymore it's still possible to disassemble it and, and that's one of the things that we're planning to do with our partners who are called tech take back based down in brighton and so they'll have a warehouse with the ability to do that and so the next thing is if a machine is still working we're working as one of our partners on the project is freegal which is the biggest reuse charity website in the uk with over two million members they happen to have been founded in brighton by this uh, amazing australian lady called cat fletcher and she and her team have an ability to take in unwanted tech from our service and to effectively to distribute it to the needy within their Freegal network in Brighton. So there's all, and that, by the way, we're also looking for that to potentially apply to um, to household goods. So things like small domestic appliances, like the toasters and the kettles, which typically never have a second home to go to. So there's a another sort of triage process that can be applied to things like toasters and kettles, which clearly are a lot less sophisticated than an old laptop. But it's, again, 
really preferable for those items to be retrieved if they're still working. And in many cases, you know, we do dump an old kettle because for aesthetic reasons or for some other reason. And so they can also be given a new life by going through a, a short test process. Now, things that have clearly reached the end of their life, they go into a large skip and then they are recycled at a material level with another mainstream brand with the capability of doing we recycling so even at the worst case scenario is that the products have been diverted away from landfill so the idea is that the council who's one of the partners brighton hove council on this project they're also looking to ensure that this avoids the real problem which is a big problem throughout the world not just in the uk of having unwanted electronic waste and electrical waste discarded in the black or residual bin which is mm. a nightmare and it's it's about the worst thing that you can do so mm. it sounds like you're working with a lot of different partners to kind of mm. bring all of this together in terms of the full journey of a collection and pick up and reuse or recycle and assessment of these things what have you learned from the pilot process that happened in sterling that yes. will help you as you move forward to hopefully expand into different regions I think that the biggest learning was, in a surprising way, was a householder enthusiasm for the idea. Some of that enthusiasm comes from, in fact, you could just say human nature and an inherent sort of laziness. Not that we're saying that people were lazy in Sterling or anything like that, but we're just saying that in a general sense, the current scenario, if you want to offload unwanted household items beyond, you know, the typical weekly or bi-weekly services that you would have from your council where you offload, you know, unwanted food waste and the black bin and the recyclables like plastics, is that it's an extremely complex and confusing landscape for most people to know what to do with so many different categories of unwanted post-consumer products, whether it's a not working lawnmower or a broken set of hedge trimmers or anything that it happens to be. And the idea was we wanted to offer a, a kind of a coherent one-stop shop service that could all, it was based on the principle of we will come to you because we can make it economically possible to do so. And what we discovered is that when we did that, we were worried at the beginning that would people go to the trouble of registering separately different categories that they actually had because they have to engage with the app. And the feedback that we got was, was very interesting and it was kind of universal. It was that people didn't say it like this, but this is clearly what they meant, that if you're going to help us to avoid having to drive into town on a Saturday and you know park with difficulty try to go into a charity shop that may or may not be open to bring a few bags of textile waste so if, if you're going to offer us the ability to do that all from the doorstep without us having to go anywhere and the service would be available all the time we will ensure that we present the goods in the right way and so one of the big kind of concepts within this area is what's called uh, preparation for reuse and so Preparation from reuse typically starts in the house, and it's all about ensuring that people handle things and sort and segregate them in the right way. Because if you, again, if you chuck in your toaster and your kettle and your unwanted generations of cables from devices that have long since not been used anymore, just doing it like that means that it's very difficult to track those items and obtain value from them, even if they may have been working. So I think the big learning was that people were very enthusiastic to support this and do the right thing on the basis that there was a clear quid pro quo benefit in it for them. 
So I think that's the learning that we want to really test further with a, because our plan in Brighton is to go to the full extent of their household jurisdiction, which is you know over a hundred thousand homes, which will be a really challenging project. But this is the one we've been preparing for for a long time. That's really interesting, actually. And there's a couple of things that came up as you were talking that I would like to ask about further. It's great to hear that there's kind of that buy-in from people, from the consumers, I suppose, in in their own homes. And you mentioned about making it viable, making it financially viable to do this door-to-door collection service. Is there a sort of critical mass that you have to hit in order to make that viable um, to go day to day? Or is it just that there's kind of a lot of flexibility in terms of pickup times? What is it that actually makes that viable? Um, it's a really good question. It's kind of like the $64,000 question because it's, uh, <laughs> we get asked a lot. And really, viability is a function of density, urban density. And the reason why, and this was said to us way back when by the Royal Mail, that if you are at a location and you are doing something logistically, either delivering or collecting, if you're able to do something else with that same transaction, at the same time, then the marginal cost of that second and subsequent transaction is almost nothing. And so we thought, okay, so if you're able to go and do two things, so we could be doing, because we are planning to do services that are also strictly commercial. I'll come to one good example of a, a real Pathfinder circular economy project in a moment. But also, if you're able to do multiple transactions in the same area at the same time, which is what our model will permit as well. And in a general sense, Emily, I think it's probably worth saying that in terms of a country the size of the UK, given the amount of e-waste that is prevalent, you could easily do between one and two individual household collections per year. So that would mean, from a Brighton perspective, that we would be looking at, at the very minimum, we'd be looking at 100,000 collections just limited to e-waste. So to broaden the answer a little bit, if you consider a, a service that is critically dependent on a very slick doorstep experience. It's worth mentioning that one of the companies that I came across in this journey was a, an amazing American company called TerraCycle, T-E-R-R-A-C-Y-C-L-E, look them up. And TerraCycle had been around for a long time, led by this amazingly charismatic American individual called Tom Zaki. They're based in uh, Trenton, New Jersey. And so they've been working for years on targeting difficult to recover plastic waste streams and then upcycling those into a whole variety of things. They have a bewildering array of offerings. And for example, they can take crisp bags and they had a famous campaign a couple of years ago to try and get back Walker's crisp bags at scale and they can turn them into garden furniture. That's obviously um, fantastic, but you know, models like that always put a huge amount of effort into trying to re- recover from the doorstep. So adding a service like that, for example, on top of ours, where not only would we be collecting e-waste, but you know, we could walk, talk, and chew gum at the same time. So the idea is that we could do more than one category of collection at the same doorstep collection event. And that's how suddenly it begins to become much more commercially interesting because you've managed to do two, going back to the advice given to me by Royal Mail all those years ago, you know, the more you do at the same logistical event, then the, the cheaper it is to deliver service. And, but what's really interesting now about TerraCycle is they've taken a, a leap into a, a new direction and they've created this, what I personally think is probably the most groundbreaking initiative 
helping with the transition to circularity ever. And it's an initiative called Loopstore, L-O-O-P-S-T-O-R-E. So Loopstore is a, a whole delivery platform for major consumer brands. So they've signed up Unilever, Procter & Gamble, and several others. But you've got Unilever and Procter & Gamble kind of means you've got 90% plus of all major household brands. And how this offering works, and I'll explain how this is of interest to us, is that they're offering reusable packaging for many, many different kinds of household consumables. So, you know, shampoos and things like ice cream, from shampoos to ice cream and everything in between. And if you look at just one example, that Tom, when he did a, an absolutely jaw-dropping good presentation at uh, the Recycling Waste Management or WM event in Birmingham last year, was he showed the container they use for Häagen-Dazs because Häagen-Dazs is one of their clients. And they were trialing this in Florida and Orlando, which, as you could imagine, would be a pretty decent market most of the time for ice cream. And the sort of the American ice cream eating experience was that you open the tub, you crank up Netflix, and you sit down on your couch and you scoop it into your mouth over a period of two hours. Except by the time you get to 40 minutes, the container has got all squidgy and, and everything's starting to melt. This is actually a flask. So this was a consumer packaging that was basically a full-on flask. And so that means, well, it's got to be not recycled, but reused and refilled. So the container had a fairly hefty deposit of, it's either 5 or $10, but it's enough for you to take it seriously. And so their model is all about recovering it from the household, taking it to a place where it gets cleaned to surgical levels of cleanliness, and then sent to a factory where it gets refilled and put back out again. And they're applying that, that you look, it's really worthwhile looking up their website, but they're applying that all over. So this is a complete shift in consumption in that the packaging, which is the bane of all of us. I just looked up there before we came on air that the global figure for plastic production is scheduled to hit uh, 300 million tons in 2020. And that's absolutely mind-numbing, given that we all know where this stuff ends up. And that, you know, according to Ellen MacArthur reports from 2019, only 2% of plastic is meaningfully recycled, in spite of what the industry might have you believe. So I think that that Loop Store initiative and our interest in that and their interest in us is that we can make that whole doorstep experience of both delivery and recovery extremely slick from a consumer point of view so that when you have all these containers that we can both collect them and then critically we can also inspect them and apply the deposit because one of the services that we think will be very keenly of interest to big brands in the coming years is the idea which has been introduced in Scotland in a slightly different way but the deposit return scheme or DRS and so we'd like to create a doorstep DRS service that could dovetail in with the challenges that the likes of Loop Store face when they try to scale their offerings so it's very interesting times and we just we see the whole Brighton initiative as being a real pathfinder project for trialing many many different kinds of new approach to consumption of which to me certainly Loop Store is the absolute runaway shining best example of that mm. I, that's really interesting and one question i have for you paul is you're kind of providing this platform and service you know joining the dots as you say reverse logistics to do circular economy terminology of joining the dots between the consumers in the house and multiple partners who are going to use or reuse the or recycle in the worst case the returned items are you finding that, like in the situation in Brighton, for example, is that a case of those partners or one partner being saying, we need a platform to do this? 
Or is it more a case of you yourselves as ZeroNet going into the situation saying, you know, we will be here at the platform and we work are coordinating and communicating and doing the sort of organization of everybody involved, if you see what I mean, is if that's how you see the future of the platform purely or the sort of coordination of the program as well? I think it's very much the case, Barry, that we want to use Brighton as a testbed to figure out exactly how our model will work. I think ultimately we are going to be definitely dependent on real world partners on the ground, as opposed to, you know, us, we live in two software clouds, but we would see ourselves providing um, a capability to other kinds of partners that that would run the gamut of logistics on the ground, warehousing on the ground, and maybe some reprocessing, because there's, the last count, there's at least 20 different kinds of, of stakeholder organizations that we can help, you know, from people who recover school uniforms to put those back out again because that's actually a big market in Scotland, as it turns out, to people who might want to recover things like bicycles that um, so many people have, as has been discovered recently, because they're all being taken out of the shed and put back into service. But everybody has an enormous amount of unwanted, used once or used for a time inventory that they simply don't know what to do. There is a, a vast degree of confusion amongst householders as to what they need to do. And what we want to try and find is a coherent, cohesive, single approach that can allow the idea of circularity. And let's call it what it is. It's about creating a zero waste model that can scale. And knowing as much as I kind of now know about the gap in achieving circularity and the fact that there is this huge hole in the area of professionalized collection logistics, the idea of creating a platform like the ZeroNet to accommodate that was sort of too good Mm. to be true. I hope that sort of vaguely answers your question. (laughs) No, it totally does. And thank you for that. The thing that's interesting, and I find it just brilliant. It's such a brilliant story, or I guess the platform, the product story, when you're talking about the sort of amateurist throwing away of waste, and it's just that it's a mess, and we don't know what happens to it, and, and it can't be easily reused, or you know, it's just basically that throw it away culture, I guess. Which I, I really enjoyed the fact you described that as amateurist, and then you're talking about the platform to sort of professionalize and and to make that you know, viable, and then also to inherently provide the information with those inventory, those items as they come back, so you know what's going to happen to them or what needs done to them. I think that's an incredibly powerful story. The other story that I thought. Uh, that you started off and you, you sort of told us a little bit about was your own journey of getting to this point. So you had the original idea, you had this experience with uh, the Ellen MacArthur CE100, you know, and then it's taken some time, obviously, with as with any difficult problem or difficult product to get to the point where you're now in real world use or real world trials or prototyping. That's been quite a long process. Have yeah. what is, <laughs> What's driven you? What's kept you going through all of that? I have a sense that from the outset, at the beginning, it was a hunch rather than something that was validated. But when I first kind of came up with the idea and did a little bit of exploring, before I started to validate it and get some kind of real world endorsement, I was of the view that this really is something that has to be done. So there's a ginormous opportunity here. And I wasn't motivated commercially at this time, but I was going through a bit of a change in life. And I thought, this has to be done. And as I reached out, I came from a kind of a consulting and sales background, so I knew how to open doors. 
And so I thought I'll open some big doors, try and work my way in and just and test the idea. And everywhere I went to test the idea, I got positive feedback, but always the same. But look, you know, even large mammoth outfits like the Royal Mail or big brands, they'd all say, look, we need to see what would this look like? You know, we're not an investor. We're not that type of organization. We need to see it working. So I guess what kept me going was the belief that I had stumbled on something and proven conceptually at any rate that the idea was very sound. So what kept me going was the belief that if I kept going, eventually that there would be light at the end of the tunnel. I just didn't think that the tunnel would take the bones of a decade to emerge from. I really didn't. <laughs> but then ignorance is bliss. And I'm kind of glad that if I had gone back five years and someone said, look, you'll finally emerge from, you know, kind of technological hibernation sometime towards the end of 2020, I would said, no, no, that's complete nonsense. That just can't be true. So I didn't want to have a plan B. I still don't. <laughs> this is the only plan that I kind of care about. And I'm at a time in life without revealing anything further where there's not an enormous amount of chronological room for other possibilities. So I kind of, I've <laughs> putting it as diplomatically as I can. So I kind of stumbled on this and thought, no, I'm going to do this come hell or high water. And, and that's where we are. But it is happening now. And we do have a platform and it's, it works, it's demonstrable, and it's going to be piloting at scale. So really, the rubber will be hitting the road in Brighton very soon. And I'm very excited about that. Yeah, it sounds very exciting. And it's incredible that you've come such a long way and kind of now seeing the fruits of your labour. And as Barry said, that from that initial idea of how do we make the collection side of this cycle, how do we make it a bit more professional? And now it's kind of coming into a reality, which is really exciting. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. I actually would like to play devil's advocate for a small moment. Um, oh, gee. <laughs> I knew this was coming. <laughs> because obviously, with the idea of circular economy, there is a lot that needs to be done in terms of data and information and logistics and infrastructure. And that's where you're working incredibly hard to make that a reality. And on the other side, there's also mindset and mentality and how we as a society think about how we're consuming and how we're and our kind of duty of care to the things that we do consume and then dispose of so I suppose my question is as the disposal of things becomes more professionalized to what extent does it have the potential to encourage a more throwaway mentality you know you mentioned the idea of the kettle and sometimes you just kind of want a new kettle for your kitchen or you've done out the house or something. And so if it becomes easier to just say, oh, well, I'll put it on the app and Paul will come and collect it. How much in your experience of what you've already worked with, does that kind of generate less care taken over what we're consuming and how we're getting rid of it as opposed to actually thinking about things and the value of things beyond how we use them? I think it's early days in that sense, in that we're not long enough and long in the tooth in doing this to have a sort of a definitive view. But what I will say is that there are certain kind of structural incentives that are starting to emerge that will, I think, change the way that people think about what they buy in the sense that the European Union and the UK as well, because there's still, in spite of everything that is going on, there's still a lot of 
interchange of ideas and uh, sort of legacy policy in the UK. And I think that in spite of everything, that's, that's going to continue. But I think that there is a one or two very interesting initiatives, one of which is called Extended Producer Responsibility, EPR. And the idea, as I referred to earlier, is deposit return schemes. I think that it's going to be possible technically to apply things like deposits to very small items. I mean, already in Scotland, Scotland is introducing a DRS at the doorstep, not at the doorstep, but for in-store take-back. So shops will be part of the scheme. And using very clever squashing technology, this technology is going to be applied to PET bottles. And I think the figure I read and checked out, and it seems to be true, is that the country is targeting an an astonishing 140,000 items potentially recoverable through this channel per day which is absolutely just really gives you a, an indication of how big the problem is so this would be drinks bottles so i think that that kind of necessary behavioral change is going to be carrot and stick and the stick is that you know you buy something that uh, attracts a deposit and you don't get your deposit back unless you handle it in the right way at the point of completion of your cycle of consumption. And so being able to apply that at the doorstep, I mean, imagine if there was a, uh, every time you bought a toaster or a hairdryer, there was a fiver that you had to pay at the point of purchase. And if you, you know, had it collected through our service at the end of life, and you knew that that fiver was lingering in that product for however long you used it, you would do the right thing. I don't think it would encourage, to go back to your the initial part of your question, I don't think it would encourage excess consumption. I think it would nudge people because this is all about the psychology of nudging people to do the right thing. But I genuinely think that if you incentivize people in the right way, and you know, you've got, in our case, there's a double incentive, which is you don't have to go anywhere, we'll take it back, and we'll apply the deposit, which will be through your account. And we'll share that deposit then with the stakeholder, which could be a council, or could be a brand or whoever, or a scheme. So I think there's lots of sort of little structural incentives that are starting to emerge and the fact that loop store have already built in a deposit into their model is brilliant and obviously the logistics of how to recover that is something that we're in discussions with them about so we're a bit early days emily but at the same time i think it's a there's lots of positiveness to look forward to and in an odd sense the fact that the household waste recycling centers of the hwrcs are largely no-go areas, even if they might be open in different parts of the UK. But the fact that it's not a place where people would want to go right now, we think will actually encourage uh, uptake of our service once we hit the streets in September. Yeah, that was a good answer. I liked it. I um, I have no idea what I just said. So (laughs) (laughs) I was being very devil's advocate. Perfectly Um, reasonable. (laughs) I agree that there's a lot of kind of mentality shift happening already towards this duty of care and this kind of awareness of what happens to our products and also that mentality of holding companies and councils and kind of bigger authorities accountable to what they're doing with our waste once we put it in their care. So I think that this service that you provide is just kind of playing into that really nicely, actually. I hope so. I was just thinking the other day, you know, I was reading about the scandal of plastic recycling and how Sainsbury's and Morrison's bags were ending up in, actually found in an Indonesian jungle. I'm thinking that's just, you can't find enough words to express your horror and outrage at something like that. But that's now endemic because of, you know, again, this big structural shift in the last few years, which is China quite rightly saying, we're not taking all your crap anymore, Western world, we're just not doing it and putting up the so-called green wall of China to prevent 
the importation of, uh, because it was never properly handled to begin with. And now the industry is desperately trying to find other outlets and other countries where they can go. And so often it's ending up in places like Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, countries that are barely able to handle their own waste because they simply don't have an adequate infrastructure. So that's another scandal of, on top of so many other scandals. Yeah, that's an endless spiral, as you say, digging into some of the horrors of that. And I, find, I think it's really, um, it's too, unfortunately, as we run out of time for this conversation, I think it's really cool that, or I guess impressive that you've gone through this journey, your personal journey, and then we have this platform that is hopefully going to have that level of impact that we've talked about. I think that's really cool. I hope so. <laughs> we hope so. <laughs> I mean, if we do it right, it should have, because it is really a, a complete shift in the way that we handle and process anything that is post-consumer, because it's it's trying to solve a fundamental problem that exists effectively for everything. You know, I'm looking around me at my desk area at dozens of objects, some of which have a purpose, many of which used to have a purpose, but are forgotten about. And even now, this used to be my daughter's desk. There's a little gizmo up here, which is a, a thing called an e-dictionary. I've never seen it before. It's manufactured by Sharp. It uh, looks like a pocket calculator. And yet, it's you kind of look at it and go, actually, I can do all of this on my phone now. And so what happens to all of the what do we do with that? Yeah. shiny materials? And the answer is, I haven't got a clue, <laughs> because that's the only answer that any of us have. So just before we finish up, for any listeners who want to find out more about the work you're doing and more about ZeroNet, where can they go? TheZeroNet.com, which is, we're deliberately not putting out the Brighton story. That's still the Scotland story. And we will be using Twitter and all the usual things. But oddly, the one thing that we're not going to do is go bananas on social media when we start. We're going to just put blinkers on and really focus on local marketing initiatives. So it'll be easy to obviously flip that over into all of the usual channels as we expand beyond Brighton. But for now, we're focused on just getting it right down there um, with kind of minimum noise making. So, uh, yeah, we won't be doing a Donald Trump on it in terms of... <laughs> Tweeting everything to the masses. Tweeting everything. <laughs> awesome. Okay, great. So thezeronet.com. Thezeronet.com, yeah. As usual, we'll put the links there on the show notes on happyporchradio.com. Sure. Thank you, Paul. Really appreciate that. It was a, nice pleasure. an inspiring story. For, thanks for sharing. Oh, I'm delighted to. So uh, best of luck to both of you. You can find notes and links from this episode, plus a full transcript at happyporchradio.com. If you are enjoying the show, please take a moment to give us a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to Happy Porch Radio.